podcast dedicated to extraordinary conversations on pregnancy and birth with your hosts, Dr. Alex Umbers and Dr. Kara Thompson. Pregnancy Uncut acknowledges the Wadawurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land with which we record this. A special welcome to all our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, especially the mothers, daughters, sisters and aunties. Content warning, heads up guys, this podcast contains materials on pregnancy loss and complications and it may be confronting. Happy 2023. 2023 and welcome back to season five. Hey, I can't believe it. Yeah, and we've got so much in store for the year ahead. Can't wait to share all these wonderful apps with our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. It's never ending the incredible stories that people have to share and we're looking forward to bringing more of them to you this year. Yeah. And Cara, one of the things I've done over the summer break is to read a couple of books, one of which was Sean Pry's book, Childless, A Story of Freedom and Longing, which was recently released. And I have to say, it is a really incredible book. Oh, I have actually just downloaded it. So that is on my, my beach read list. I will get to it. So we catch up with Sean and talk about what motivated her to write this book. As she says herself, you know, it's a book that if you walked into the local bookstore and saw Childless on the shelf, even though it's got a very groovy cover, you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, I really want to read a book like this. Mm, Yeah. And I think that probably goes to the heart of the whole topic, hey? It's not a topic that we feel comfortable thinking about and discussing. And we're very happy as a society to just shove it into the corner and not think about it. And that's why I think it's so important and so brave of Shan to bring it out into the open because they're topics that we we need to think about and we need to understand the impact that they have on people. The thing that really struck me about Shan is, and now she's in her late 50s and she's reflecting back on her infertility journey and her journey with recurrent miscarriage. And it's only decades later is she able to fully process and articulate the kind of grief that she went through and the way it affected her relationships and indeed like the trajectory of her life. And I think that says a lot about the depth of grief, the unspoken grief that requires so much unpacking down the track. Yeah, absolutely. And as she explains that double difficulty in talking about this and processing this because not only do you have that grief and longing of wanting to be a mother and that wish that hasn't been fulfilled but you also have that second impact of society not being prepared to sit and listen with a sympathetic ear and in fact often it's the opposite you know we have some awful words and opinions and thoughts about women who don't in inverted commas fulfill their biological destiny and so it hasn't been a receptive environment to sit down and talk about these issues honestly and as a result people have been suffering in silence well let's get into the interview shall we let's do it welcome Sian. thank you so much for joining us now you're a woman who has so many facets to your life you're a writer a musician a professional broadcaster, a journalist, even a climate activist. I don't know how you fit it all in. Life for you in so many ways has been full, but there is one element in your life that has not come to be. And you are here to talk about your new memoir, Childless. Can you tell us what motivated you to write Childless? Childless. 
oh, isn't that interesting? That's sort of the clearest question I could be asked and yet the hardest to answer. Um, I... I, you know, I've had a very, I had a very long, complicated journey through trying to have a child, and even while I was going through it, there was part of me that thought, "Oh my God, I could write about this. I should write about this." And I think, partly, I wanted to write about it as a way of processing it, and, and in particular, processing the grief that it entailed, and partly. I think I wanted to write about it because I feel like this is a kind of a almost a subculture that most people don't really know about and don't understand and certainly probably would find it hard to imagine the, the challenges of it, even down to the, the, the minutiae of what it feels like to sit in a waiting room of a, a gynecologist or, uh, or an IVF specialist surrounded by apparently pregnant people when you are desperately wishing and hoping you could be one of them. Um, I just felt like there was a story to be told about the emotional travails uh, uh, that were involved in that journey. Yeah, I'm so glad you have because in some ways part of what we do at Pregnancy Uncut is trying to break through some of the stigma and stereotypes associated with lives that haven't gone to plan. And I think childlessness is one topic that there is so much stereotype around it. And I think that's something you explore in your book, isn't it? It is, and in particular I rage against the, the negative stereotypes which I've encountered and I'm sure many, many, many other women without children encounter um, because a lot of those negative stereotypes feels like they add insult to injury, you know, if you're someone who really, really wanted to be a mother and weren't able to and then people quite overtly tell you that they think childless women are selfish or they tell you they think you chose your career over being a mother, you know, it's 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 heartbreaking um, and people need to stop doing that <laughs> and they probably don't know that they're doing that. They probably don't realise the impact that those comments and, and assumptions have. So I'm here to tell people that. I <laughs> love it. And there is that stereotype going back to it about, you know, women that might be career focused or even, you know, if we think about what Julia Gillard went through, that sort of public shaming for being childless. It's like we don't hold men to the same account in the way we do women, be it childless by choice or childless not by choice. Yes, it's like it strikes at the very heart of what people think women should be and do and that if you do not fulfil some kind of mythical biological destiny, then you are a very strange and potentially dangerous creature. And that was the the stuff that Julia Gillard copped, you know, the ditch, the witch, everything of witches as being mothers, do you? And the and the, the word barren, which is so full of horrible judgment. Oh, there were conservative politicians who were virtually implying she was some kind of a sociopath because she didn't have children and she wouldn't understand what real people feel. And it feels ancient, that stuff, doesn't it? It feels like it goes back millennia to, yeah. and taps into some very, I think it's about fear. I think there's some very deep fear that if women are not 
women's activities are not curtailed by mothering, then gosh, what might they be able to do? You know, yeah, look out. Oh. Get in the way of power of those who've always had power. I don't know. Yeah, so interesting. Hashtag patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> now, Shan, your book is about your own experience with the longing and wanting your own family, but your own story starts off as a baby with the loss of your father very early, unexpectedly at a beach. Can you tell us what the story was around losing your father and what you remember about your early years. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible story. And to be honest, for for most of my life, I just thought of it as a terrible story. It was almost as if I wasn't there, even though I was. But I was only three months old and my parents and me and my two older siblings were on a beach in right on the border of Queensland, New South Wales, and two young people got into trouble in the surf and my father, a very strong swimmer, a great athlete, jumped in and tried to save them. And indeed, he did save these two young people, but at the cost of his own life. So he he just disappeared under the waves, you know, in front of my mother and, and her three children. Um, and so, you know, just a, a devastating event in my mother's life and in the family's life, obviously. Um, And so it's taken me until my mid-50s to really explore and understand the the potential impact of an event like that on me as a a very young infant and therefore the, the kind of emotional development of my life. And when you think about it, I would have gone from being surrounded by happiness and smiling adults and everybody celebrating my existence <laughs> to only one parent who was in presumably a state of extreme shock and distress, probably not even capable of smiling. And, you know, the more we understand about, about infant development, the more we know these Mm, circumstances do have an impact on, on babies. Um, and I've always been a, a you know a very anxious person. <laughs> and my first book, Shy, was was about my social anxiety. And I, I just in that book I kind of assumed that was all about temperament, you know, how I was what I was born with. But the older I get, the more I think, oh well, you know, tricky combination, shy temperament plus early trauma. Of course I'm going to spend a life dealing with anxiety. So, you know, and the older I've grown, the more curious I have become about that man who disappeared under the waves. Um, by all accounts, I look a lot like him. All of all three children in our family look a lot like him and not very much like our, our, our little mother. So, yeah, part of the, the aim of the book was to try to, to explore that ancient grief, which I can now call it a grief, and what impact that might have had on the the many decisions I made in my life that may have contributed to me ending up, you know, single and childless at the age of 58, Um, and and to try to have a bit of compassion for myself in the light of what our family endured way back then. Yeah, finding that kindness in the same way you might show a child kindness who's been through something difficult. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, Sean, when did you first get a sense that you wanted to be a mother? I don't remember a time when I didn't 
want to be a mother and assume I would be a mother. Growing up, I loved children. I loved little children. I spent lots of time with children, with my younger cousins, with, you know, babysitting. I still do. I just absolutely love children. Um, They offered me, you know, maybe part of it was they offered me an escape from my anxiety because children are so unknowing and so creative and play is a great way to get away from anxiety and with children it's all about play so yeah I just always assumed that when the time came that I would choose to have a child then I would do that to be honest I think I was even more certain about the knowledge that I would have a child than I was about the idea of actually finding a person to be in a long-term stable relationship with in order to have a child but I think I always thought well Oh, well, whatever happens, I'm going to make sure there's a way for me to do this, even if I have to do it alone. So when the time came and I then partner and I decided to start trying to have a family, it came as a desperately rude shock to me (laughs) that I had an early miscarriage and and then things just went really pear-shaped. And, you know, of course, in retrospect, I'm, I'm... baffled by my naivety you know I'm baffled by how much I just assumed it was going to happen but perhaps it's because I grew up in a generation of of young women who were benefiting massively from the gains of first and second wave feminism you know we had contraception I think we felt like we had ultimate control over our biological destiny Um, and all of that of course was about not having a child when you didn't want to have a child. I just didn't realise that I might not have a child when I did want to have a child. Yeah, yeah. And like you say, it all comes down to that sense of being empowered to make choices. You know, when the time is right, there's an expectation Mm. that it's a conscious decision to move into that space. And then you found yourself and your partner at the time, Jack, grappling with this unexplained journey of miscarriage and then infertility. What was that experience like walking into it? Oh, look, it was it was horrible. Um, part of this sort of anxiety, anxious temperament of mine involve, has involved a lot of perfectionism. So I've always worked really hard at being the best at what I was doing or, you know, being really good at what I was doing and being very anxious if I wasn't doing really well at what I was doing professionally, personally, uh, you know, romantically. Uh, so, it, again, it was this kind of terrible shock to discover that suddenly I was, in inverted commas, failing. I was failing at this, I don't know what you call it, challenge, this, you know, <laughs> this desire that I had. And, uh, it, it, you know, one of the things I, I wanted to write about in the book was how actually dysfunctional I was in managing those feelings. I did this thing that, you know, a lot of people in our family do and maybe my mother did when our father died was you just grit your teeth and you just get on with things and try and make things happen in the way you want them to happen. So this kind of rigid stoicism that left no room for grief, for acknowledging the emotional pain that that this 
stuff involved. Um, and when I say this stuff, you know, I ended up having three miscarriages and in between those miscarriages, long periods of apparent infertility. I was investigated, endlessly investigated. No one seemed to be able to find out what was wrong or why I couldn't, you know, carry a successful pregnancy and found it so hard to get pregnant. So, yeah, it was, to be honest, it was horrendous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I'm, it's like I'm only now catching up emotionally with just how bad it was because at the time I couldn't, I just couldn't deal with the the reality of that pain. I just marched on like a foolish soldier. Yeah, what a powerful analogy. And I think it's just such an incredible insight too because now three decades later, are you starting to unpack it and understand the true extent of the emotions surrounding that really challenging experience? Mm. I wanted to explore with you your experience around one particular miscarriage where you were broadcasting live on air and found yourself bleeding. And, you know, it really begs the question, what what do you think was compelling you to keep going despite everything else around your fertility and your desire to become a mother sort of falling around you and, and keep the show going? Yeah, oh, that was one of the... You know, the most baffling things that I wrote about um, looking back, you know, the whole thing about writing a memoir is trying to have insight with hindsight. And so I had to ask myself over and over why when I was mid-outdoor broadcast (laughs) bleeding like a mofo, why did I just say to myself the show must go on? Why didn't I just say to my producer, I'm having a medical emergency, I've got to go, someone else is going to have to deal with this. Um, and I think there are a, I think there are a range of complex reasons. I think what I was talking about before, that kind of mad stoicism was part of it, of like, uh, and perfectionism. It's like I can't be seen to be in any way failing this professional role I have as a broadcaster. And in particular, I think that that is potentially an issue for many women working in fields that have traditionally been dominated by men. You know, when my parents were growing up, it was the men presenting the radio programs. When I started presenting on radio, I was repeatedly told, could I lower the pitch of my voice because listeners don't like women's high voices? This is the, you know, late 1990s we're talking, so hopefully things have changed a bit. But um, it was a time when women almost had to pretend to be men in order to be seen as succeeding at their job. So if I admitted that I was having a miscarriage, you know, only possible for people who were born biologically women, then it was proof that women are a problem. Women are a problem. Like, you know, their bulging, leaking bodies are professionally a problem. We can't really be trusting them to get the job done. Um, But I had also been working. I mean, I worked for the ABC and I had observed other women having children, going off and and not getting their jobs back and um, when they wanted to come back. You know, there is often a a covert sort of punishment for women who wanted to have kids and careers. And so I hadn't told anyone at work that I was trying to get pregnant. I was also on contract. I was working year-by-year contract at that point. If I had said to these people I'm trying to get pregnant or I'm having miscarriage, therefore I'm 
obviously trying to get pregnant, why would they renew my contract? Mm. Madness for them, you know, just cost them money. So, yeah, for all those reasons, and I'm sure I am not Robinson Crusoe in that. I'm sure there's lots of women juggling all of those terrible considerations when trying to have children. And I wish it were otherwise, and I hope maybe it is a bit otherwise now, but maybe not. Yeah, I think some workplaces are starting to integrate policies for bereavement leave around miscarriage or, you know, even leave around other women's health issues like heavy menstrual bleeding or the various things that can come up throughout a woman's reproductive life. So I feel like the tide is turning, but it is slow. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it's slow because we women have allowed ourselves to be silenced. And, you know, it's hard to put your head above the parapet and say, this is happening and this is unfair because people who first put their head above the parapet get shot. We know that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, our silence is a form of complicity and, that again, that's part of what this book is trying to do. I'm trying to say, can we just can we talk about this? Can yes. we actually acknowledge this stuff has been happening and give women a break? <laughs> Absolutely. And part of your journey with Jack was acknowledging where you were at going through it, but what sort of impact did it have on that relationship that eventually came to an end? Mm. Well, it had a, you know, it had a devastating impact on that relationship because I think of, of how each of us was trying to manage our sadness and my response was just the stoicism and the trying to grip my teeth and keep trying. His response was, you know, he he is a beautiful person and a very optimistic and positive person and his response was just to say, well, just, you know, it'll be all right, you know, it, 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 so we just have to bide our time and it'll happen. So he was kind of relentlessly positive. And between my stoicism and his relentless positivity was this gulf of grief. Yeah. And neither of us. I think we're able to properly acknowledge or join each other in in the center, yeah, and, and with our grief. Yeah, that silent grief—it's like a chasm, isn't it, in a relationship? It is. It is, and you know, I know that this happens for couples, not just around miscarriages. All sorts of reasons why grief becomes an un- unbridgeable chasm. And again, hindsight is a wonderful thing. But, yes, it, it sort of eroded everything about that relationship and, I, and eventually I, I left that relationship. Yeah. And then you went on, Sean, to start a fresh chapter to try and find love, energy and new inspiration and you meet a man named Tom. In the book you describe Tom as coming from an enormous family and having three children of his own and while you were getting to know each other in your late 30s you discovered he'd had a vasectomy and was sure he didn't want any more. Are you able to give us a bit more insight around the conflict between being madly in love with this man and having very different ideas about whether or not children would be in the future? Yeah, it was, gosh, it was terrible. Um, you know, it was so unfair, <laughs> but that's life. So, of course, I... I understood and I had to respect his desire not to have any more children. You know, he'd, he'd had two 
two different families and, you know, big gaps between them. And so he'd been being a father for a very long time and he'd done, you know, he'd, he'd had enough of starting over. But I was still so fixated on trying to have this thing that I wanted, have this child that I wanted. And, you know, when you're in love, the, the, the thing you want most is to to do that with the person that you love. So I tried to change his mind um, and I, I think in some part of my brain, I told myself, well, if he really loved me, he would do this thing with or for me. Um, and I knew that was fuzzy logic and not fair, but I couldn't stop feeling that way. But he was very determined not to. So I decided to try and have a child using IVF and donor sperm, which was pretty much the only option left to me at that point, other than leaving him, trying to find someone else, blah, 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 blah. You know, and I was 38, 37, 38 at this time. I was tickety-tock with the biological clock, basically. 100%. Um, yeah, so, you know, there was a moment where he changed his mind and said he would help me, and there are ways, as you would know, of even men with vasectomies um, trying to have children. And then he changed his mind again and said, no, he didn't want to. So all of that was excruciating. And so in the end I did try the IVF with donor sperm route, yeah. yeah. I wanted to ask, Sean, in your book you describe this sort of language and the way when you approach a fertility specialist that you might be pigeonholed into one kind of person seeking medical treatment. And I think as someone in a relationship who wanted donor sperm to be a solo parent, like that must have been very non-conventional for some of the people trying to help you have a baby. What, what sort of responses did you get? Well, look, it, was, it got very complicated because when... When my partner changed his mind the second time and said he wouldn't help me, we actually broke up. I was, it was just too, it was all just too terrible for me. So we broke up and I went straight back to the IVF clinic and said, okay, I am now a single person. I want to try this. As a, and so I started the IVF as a single person, but then we got back together. And I just, I, can't, I don't think I even mentioned that to the, to the clinic because, I don't know, would they have said, oh, well, no, we, that's not going to work. Um, I mean, I don't think they would have because they were, it was very much, they were just on the medical route at that point. I was just, a you know, a, a medical object to be treated, I suppose. But, yeah, look, it was messy. It was really messy. And it feels a bit mad in retrospect, you know. I feel like I was almost overtaken by a form of, of madness, so strong was my desire to have this child and so determined was I to just go, well, whatever the circumstances, I am going to make this work. But to be honest, I was working freelance, very precariously employed with a bloke who clearly didn't want to be taking on any more children. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I don't know. Who was that woman doing all those (laughs) mad Well, it was a woman who is used to working hard, having a goal equates to outcomes. And in this case, that wasn't to be. And I just find it interesting to now look at the stats of patients seeking fertility treatment or donor sperm. The second highest rates of patient are the single woman. And it's so interesting that now that that process is becoming normalized and we are recognizing that there are many women now who find themselves in the shoes that you were in. It's so interesting. I mean, 
I'm sure there are, you know, sociologists, um, demographers studying this, and I am no expert in why this might be, but my sense is that there are a lot of women who get trapped between the desire and, and the deservingness of having an interesting career and the challenge of finding a partner who at the same time as you wants to have kids and support you perhaps while you take time out. And I think these are the women who are finding they get to a certain age where the only apparent option available to them in the final years of their decent fertility is to go it alone. And, you know, I find it sort of simultaneously deeply sad because I suspect most of us would like to do it with with a caring, loving partner. But I also really admire those women who, who like me, just say, I've got to do it alone, I'll just try and do it alone rather than not do it. Um, but, yeah, it's there's clearly something going wrong with uh, the way we organise ourselves socially, professionally, culturally, emotionally, that this is a growing trend, mm. don't you think? Yeah, I think amongst my own friends, you know, it's it's not just about the career that's delaying childbearing. It's this notion that you can have everything all at once. And the reality is it, it doesn't often play out like that, that conventional idea of go to uni, meet your part, life partner, have a family, like that narrative just does not fit so many of the people I have in my life. And some are socially childless just because they haven't met the right person or they're at that cusp of deciding, okay, do I go ahead and freeze my eggs? Do I hold on to this, you know, relatively short-term relationship and see what plays out before I explore that? It really, because in a way, a woman's biological clock does run out and I think we're under duress to really make those decisions at critical time points, whereas I think men don't have to endure the same set of circumstances. Yeah, it's not fair, is it? <laughs> I think that's what's coming out of our chat. It's bad design. You know, it's bad design um, when you're talking about life in the, the 21st century. Um, and, yeah, I, I've heard countless stories not just my own, but countless stories of, of women in relationships with men who don't want to have a child or don't want to have another child or don't want to do it now. And that's all very well for them because, yes, they have many, many more years to change their mind and decide, oh, well, maybe, maybe now I am ready. And we don't. Having said that, you know, I know there are a lot of men too who end up without the children they always thought they would have for, you know, probably a combination of similar and different reasons. Maybe they too thought, oh, I'll just wait a bit longer and then they're just not in the right relationship or or they discover there's something wrong with their sperm because they've left it too long. So, you know, it's it's not just women who, are, I should say, yes. who are suffering yep. from yep. this scenario. Yep. There are, you know, there are lots of men and <laughs> there's a niche there for a new app that's like childless men, childless women. 
want to get together and have a chat. <laughs> there you go. That's your next project. I've just thought of a new career for myself. <laughs> I wanted to ask, you know, once you've sort of decided to eventually abandon this long, long longing for a child and accept where you were at, how did you redefine your own narrative as a woman? And if you weren't going to be a mother, how did you express yourself in other ways? Well, look, there are so, there were sort of two stages to that. So I gave up after a year of failed IVF. So I was in my late 30s. But I was in I was still in love and I and my partner had this family and these kids. So I guess I said to myself, okay, well, I'll just be a de facto stepmother <laughs> and um, that will have to do. And, you know, I love those kids. And, but it was also challenging, you know, because they, of course, had their own mothers and I only got to see them sometimes. So it was always about just having a little bit of what I had really, really wanted and not really having any authority or guaranteed role in those lives because there was no biological connection between us. And then about six years later, my partner just suddenly ended that relationship in a very shocking and, um, you know, painful, traumatic way for me. So that was the point at which I was like, okay, so I don't have the kids I wanted I don't have the relationship, which was the consolation prize. And after a little while, I didn't even really have the step family because those relationships were damaged by the nature of, of that, that breakup. So those were, those were a very grim few years of feeling like everything had been somehow taken from me. And after a few years, I suppose I, I got to the point where I thought, okay, well, I cannot allow this stuff to be sort of the fulcrum of a life. I need to change the script and I need to try and find out what it is that I can have as a result of not having the thing I wanted most in the world. And this is where the subtitle of, of the memoir comes in. You know, the subtitle is freedom and longing. And I thought, okay, well, what I have is an insane amount of personal freedom. I have no dependents. I have a home, you know, a mortgage, but a, a manageable one. I have still a very flexible freelance working life. I love traveling. And I'd grown up with, you know, a mother and a stepfather who had done a lot of camper vanning. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe this is what I need to do. I need to embrace this terrible freedom <laughs> that I have and and find different pleasures in my life. And so for my 50th birthday, I bought myself a tiny little camper van and my beautiful stepfather fitted it out for me. Uh, well, sorry, I bought myself a tiny van. My beautiful stepfather fitted it out for me as a camper van and I started traveling every winter. I hate the cold. I was like, okay, I'm out of here. So I would rent out my house and I would head north in the in the van and do bits of work sometimes, but, you know, mostly just explore and, and enjoy that freedom and enjoy nature. And um, I'm completely obsessed with beaches, which, you know, someone whose father drowned at a beach, you have to wonder what that's about. <laughs> Freud would have a bit to say, I think. I think he would, yeah. But, yeah, my happy place is, is on an, an ocean beach and so I've been able to spend a crazy amount of time 
walking up and down ocean beaches for the last eight years, basically. Look, and it's not, you know, it's not like I'm saying, and she lived happily ever after, you know, it's, it's the consolation prize. And it's an, it's an immense privilege. I'm so privileged, even as I'm still grappling with grief. Yeah. Shan, we were talking earlier about people's choices to have children and I think what we haven't acknowledged is some people may choose for many reasons not to have children and I think one of the reasons that comes up in conversations commonly is around climate change and what kind of earth the next generation will inherit and you've been a fearless climate activist most of your life. How do you think this is woven into the narrative of your journey with childlessness. Yeah, as with everything in this story, it's complicated. Um, My very first proper professional job out of university was as an environment campaigner for the Australian Conservation Foundation, and one of my jobs was campaigning on climate change. And back then we called it the greenhouse effect or or global warming. Um, It's a more nuanced thing now. But... I was very, very aware from a very young age of the potential, you know, apocalypse facing us unless we did something about it. And lots of my friends, even back then in the late 1980s, were feeling very ambivalent about the idea of having children because of what they, what we knew about potential for for the future. Um, And of course, just the whole issue of overpopulation of the planet was was another one, you know, how could you justify bringing another consuming being onto a planet already gasping from overconsumption? But I never wavered in my determination and desire to have children, even while I knew that. And I just used to justify it to myself by saying, well, you know, if I have kids, they will be environmentalists. And like me, they will work to make the planet a better place, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) It's funny that you feel you have to justify it, isn't it? It's like the two things, while like on average, they may add up to more climate stress, they shouldn't be mutually exclusive. No. And if we're acting responsibly in other ways. Exactly. And, of course, you know, this is one of the the tragedies of of the climate debate is that forever those most responsible for contributing to to climate change, that the industrial producers and consumers of carbon, have pushed the responsibility back onto individuals. And that's why nothing much has happened because we've all been running around going, oh, what should I do? I'm solid panels, you know, don't drive the car. And it's like, no, the problem is so much bigger than... Yes, whether I have a child or you have a child or I drive my car to the, you know, milk bar, that's a whole other conversation. But uh, I suppose one of the darkly um, consoling things about not having had children is that I don't have that acute level of personal emotional investment in the future that I think parents have. And sometimes I feel relieved not to be leaving a child and grandchildren in this world that that we have created uh, because things are going to get really rough. Um, I think there's no question about that now. But I do care about the future of the planet, so it's hard-baked, you know, I can't really... Stopped. I've tried. I tried for a while. I thought, okay, I'm just not going. I'm just not going to care about the future. I'm just going to live my selfish little life, and 
I don't have to worry about the future because no one related to me will be here. Um, but, of course, I have, you know, nieces and nephews and <laughs> friends, children I love, and so that as a psychological strategy didn't really work. Um, so part of what I, I wanted to do in the book was also to remind readers of what's at stake, you know, remind them of our responsibility to try and leave a less dire legacy for other people's children. Um, and, I, you know, I describe visiting these beautiful ocean beaches that will probably soon be gone because of sea level rises and, and we're observing these climate changes all around us now. It's, it's not like, oh, in the future. It's like, no, right now this is already happening. So, you know, that's the other thing. Sort of, I suppose, agenda of this book is to just give people a bit of an emotional nudge to mm. to do what they can, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you, Shan. We've spoken to another author in one of our earlier podcasts, Isabel Odderberg, who's re- recently published a book on miscarriage and the history of that in her own personal journey. She speaks to lots of other families that have experienced pregnancy loss and. You know, I think your book similarly challenges us to open up these conversations and talk about these things that have traditionally been pushed down, silenced and suppressed. What has the response been to sharing your very personal journey in a public way? Um, well, to be honest, I've had fewer individual responses than I expected. When my first book, Shy, came out, I had over 100 emails from from shy readers wanting to share their stories with me. I've had some very beautiful emails from readers doing the same, sharing their experience of childlessness or miscarriage with me, but much fewer. And I'm curious about that, and I wonder whether that's because it's too painful still for those Mm. people to even communicate with a fellow sufferer about um, or maybe it will just take some time to do that. Uh, In general, yeah, those who have communicated with me have said I think it's a good thing that you have written about this and that it's being aired and it's being added to the kind of cultural conversation. But it's painful. You know, I keep finding myself thinking if I walked into a bookshop and saw a book called Childless, would I buy it? Possibly not, <laughs> because because I know it would reimmerse me in the 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 pain that that I endured and that many many people have also endured. Um, so you know, I kind of have to give a trigger warning to everyone that this is this is a book in which I very openly discuss the very grueling emotional pain involved in um, infertility or, or miscarriage. So uh, I, I have joined several groups, Facebook groups of, of women who are childless, either by choice or by circumstance, and, and, you know, there are all sorts of subcategories. Very important that people are able to identify whether it's by choice or, or not because the emotional fallout can be very, very different, mm. even though there are some commonalities. Uh, and and I've felt a great sense of community from that, from finally say, seeing that there's lots of women around me who've been through versions of what I've been through. And we aren't, we're not just sitting here suffering alone or with our suffering partners. <laughs> so 
you know, I think that's great. That's one of the great things about social media is that communities of, of interest, communities of common suffering have been able to find each other and and console each other, I suppose. Yeah. And I think, you know, thinking about my own experiences with miscarriage, I think the power in opening up about it is you realise your particular form of grief is not in isolation, you know, there is that sense that that grief is experienced by other people. And, you know, as you say, it's not a consolation prize, but there is a sense of community and and belonging somewhere and being understood, I think. Yeah, and also uh, I think um, hmm, it's almost like you you learn that your, your, your grief and sadness is justified because mostly the world has not really told you that it is. Mostly the world has sort of required you to keep quiet about it or, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's part of, again, the agenda of this book was to give myself permission to grieve, even if belatedly, give myself permission to say, geez, Sean, you had a really rough time, <laughs> you poor thing. <laughs> um Rather than do what most people in my family do, which is, oh, well, just keep going, you know. Yeah. Heave ho, chop, yeah. chop. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, just a bit of self compassion and, and compassion for others dealing with the same strange little griefs. Yeah. Grand little griefs. And it all starts from a place of curiosity and compassion. And I think your book, Childless, really draws attention to both of those things, and it helps us to understand what someone might be going through and, and the ways in which we can support someone who may find themselves childless. So I devoured your book. I can say I really enjoyed it, even though that's a funny term to use. And I'm just so grateful that you were brave enough to to write that book and share it with the world. And um, we we'll certainly hope that people pick it up for their holiday reading. Thanks so much, Alex, for um, for letting me talk to you about it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's 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 all about contributing to the cultural conversation. That's 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 what my curiosity is usually about. Yeah. That's it for today. If you got something out of this episode, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. Also, we love hearing from you. If you have feedback or suggestions, email us at pregnancy.uncut at gmail.com or you can find us at pregnancyuncut.com or on Instagram. If you or someone you know wants to share their story with us, we'd love to hear from you. Talk soon.